So glad to see you here this morning, and you can have a seat here. I do want to say this. I very seldom will do this. There's so many wonderful things happening in our church, so to highlight everything that's going on is a little bit difficult from up front, but there's something very important that's taking place this evening. Um, I hope I don't embarrass him, but I want the whole church to pray for this tonight. Mark and Debbie McGoldrick are having an outreach around the movie Valor, and there is a Navy SEAL that's coming in who is a believer to speak this evening, and it's really exciting. There are 200 people sign up, and over half of them are non-Christians. So this evening, what time is it? At 7 o'clock this evening, send up some prayers that God will work and touch the hearts of uh, of, uh, those unbelievers and that they will respond respond to the gospel. Well, we're just delighted that you all are here. I hope you feel welcomed. If you're not, not a member of Fellowship Bible Church, we, we love you and thank you for coming. And we want to know how we can serve you, so please let us know that. There's some information out here in the commons area, and uh, there are people that can answer those questions for you. And thank you for being here. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Holy Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you for your love and mercy Thank you, Father, for uh, just using the folks in our body uh, to be your heart, your hands, and your feet. And God, that's the way it ought to be, Lord. You've called us to be salt and light. And, and whether it's an outreach uh, around a movie, or it's going to Europe in the summertime, or it's loving my neighbor, or it's praying for an opportunity to share the hope and the love of the Lord Jesus, the person that works next to me in my cubicle, or the, the kid that sit next to me in my biology class. Lord, may we be sensitive to the love of God that wants to flow through us and the needs of people all around us. Now, Father, speak to our hearts today. Uh, you know that this text of Scripture is, is a tragic passage, uh, but it opens up why things are the way they are in the world in which we live. Give us clarity, Lord. Give us hope. Give us reality. And may the brightness and the brilliance of Jesus come shining through today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you have a Bible, I want you to meet me in Genesis chapter 3. I'm not going to do a lot of reviewing today because there's a lot of ground to cover uh, in this section of Scripture. We're going to be covering the entirety of Genesis chapter 3, as is the case with so many of these significant passages of Scripture in the Bible. We probably could do a five or six week series on Genesis chapter three, but we're going to sort of survey the chapter and talk about the most devastating event in all of human history. I want to read to you Genesis chapter three, beginning uh, actually the first six verses of the chapter, but we're going to cover the entire chapter just to set things up. Adam and Eve have been created. The institution of marriage has been established And now tragedy strikes. Awful tragedy strikes. Genesis 3, beginning at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, "Did, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Genesis chapter 3 is the explanation for the mess and chaos in our lives and in this world. If there's one passage of the Bible that you need to spend time in and understand, it is Genesis chapter 3. And it is my prayer that, and I'm not saying this because uh, I want to sell CDs or this kind of thing, but it is my prayer that every last one of us here today will get a copy of this message and go through this text. This is from a theological, doctrinal development and understanding what has taken place in human nature the most important chapter in the Bible. That is not overstatement. This text needs to be understood by every believer to understand the implications and ramifications of the pervasive nature of sin in human history. It is an amazingly important text. One act of disobedience threw open the door and welcomed evil and moral contamination to the human race. One act of disobedience. And all that is wrong, hurtful, and damaging is anchored in sin. Uh, That is a principal statement, and uh, we're going to come back to this a little bit later on. But we need to understand, and, and please don't take that statement lightly, that all that is wrong and hurtful and damaging is anchored in sin. All sickness, uh, pain, uh, bad thoughts, everything under the canopy of what is wrong, what is damaging, what is hurtful is anchored to sin. This text is the wellspring of everything that should not be. It comes from this passage of Scripture. There's an old nursery rhyme that says, Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall, Humpty Dumpty had a great fall, and all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. And that's because Humpty Dumpty was broken beyond repair. And so for our purposes this morning, I want to adjust that little nursery rhyme. Uh, we, we, We refer to this text erroneously as the fall, as if Eve was passive and Adam was passive and somebody just pushed them off the wall. Uh, no, no, we, we shouldn't do that because uh, this is not passive. Eve was not passive. Adam, well, he was passive. We'll see this a little, little later on. But he was complicit in, in, in disobedience. And so for our purposes, Humpty Dumpty didn't fall off the wall. He stepped too close to the edge and took one devastating step. And the rest is history. So what happened? Well, for the sake of time, let me give you the four words that outline, I believe, Genesis chapter 3. Four, four words. And by the way, these four words are also a portrait of what takes place when we sin. It is the word deceived. Secondly, discovered. Thirdly, disciplined. Fourthly, dispersed. Deceived discovered, disciplined, and dispersed. I could get sidetracked by this because that's the way sin always happens. We get deceived, 
We get discovered, we get disciplined, and we become alienated. We're dispersed. First of all, there is deception, deceived. That's verses 1 through 6 that I just read to you. Uh, before, before I talk about the temptation and the response, let me make some general observations about these first six verses. As you look at the context here, you discover God created and he spoke it into existence. Uh, it is my view that Genesis 1 through 3 is not allegory. It is not, a, it's not parabolic. These are actual events. And that creation is not a process. I'm not into the day-age theory because there's nothing in the text of creation that would warrant that conclusion. I take yom meaning what it normally means, a 24-hour period of time, and which really makes creation remarkable. God spoke it into existence. He spoke it, and it happened. And he created a mature earth and a mature man. And so the word of the Lord brought life and order, but here in this text, the word of the devil would bring chaos and death. And it's very important to understand that here is a strategy of the enemy from, from, for, for the rest of time. He always brings destruction. He always brings death. God always brings life, and he always brings hope. The second observation is found in verse 1, the snake there. Not to be too picturesque here, but uh, the tempter was a serpent, came in the form of a serpent, suggesting that temptation comes in a disguise, sometimes hidden and unexpected. The word crafty, some translations says shrewd. And this is to help us understand from now on the way temptation comes is indirectly, of course. And the third thing that I like to say, as you look at verses 1 through 6, God is setting a precedent in terms of of not blaming sin on anything else but ourselves. Sin cannot be blamed on our environment or heredity. Think about it. Adam and Eve had God as their father. So there was no hereditary propensity toward evil. And secondly, they lived in a perfect environment, and yet they still sinned. And I like for us to be careful. I'm going to get to this later in the text when we start talking about the blaming that takes place here. But one of our biggest, biggest problems as followers of Christ, and I'm going to talk very directly to us today, one of our biggest problems as followers of Christ is, is to somehow excuse ourselves for the choices and decisions that we make. This is forever a mirror of personal responsibility as we go through this. Now, the temptation is found in verses 1 through 5, and, and, and for the sake of time, because of the amount of stuff we need to cover, let me suggest to you that Satan's strategy in this, these, these verses, these five verses, was based upon questioning three things. He raised three questions. First of all, he questioned what God meant. Verses, uh, verse 1, he says in uh, the middle of the verse, he said, He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now here's the problem. Uh, If you go back, Eve got it wrong too. She was hooked at the very beginning. Uh, He questioned what God's meant, and Eve's first mistake was that she contrasted her words with God's words, which was not exactly what he said. Uh, I won't do your homework for you, but go back and read Genesis 2, 16 and 17. She got a little sloppy with what he said, and that set her up. 
Oh, I can't resist this one. Listen to me. Don't get sloppy about your Bible study. This is the reason why I believe in expository preaching. And this is the reason why we believe in this church emphasizing the words of Scripture. You get in trouble, you get in trouble when you start speculating and assuming and generalizing what God is saying. And this was a problem at the very beginning. So she is actually set up for destruction because she kind of like summarized it and gave it back to him. Not exactly. The second thing that the devil did was that he questioned what God intended. Now look at verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you, you shall not surely die. You know, that's not what he meant. He, he didn't mean it that way. This is maybe allegorical or he, he, he really, really didn't mean it that way. See, when, when certain, Satan heard what Eve said, he blatantly negated the penalty of death that God had given. You will not surely die. The bottom line is he told a lie. He told a lie. And even in this text, the way the devil works throughout human history is established. Uh, hold your finger there and go over to John, John, John chapter, uh, John chapter 8. Jesus reminding the religious leaders that all sin is related to a lie. And wherever there's a lie, there's a presence of Satan. Verse 44, in John chapter 8, he says, you are of your father, the devil. You know, Jesus, uh, Jesus said some pretty hard things. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he has nothing to do with the truth. Because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So from the very beginning, he acted consistent with his nature. Evil is not cute. I would just like to say that to you. Evil is not cute. And by the way, by the way, parents, I think we ought to come down very hard on lying in our kids. In fact, lying in our own lives. Lying is from the devil. It is not convenient. To not tell the truth is to leave the door open to evil in our lives and evil in our families. Lying is absolutely wrong. And this is a lie that you can, you, you can sin and get away with it. That's the lie. The lie is that you can, you can sin and get away with it. It's okay. And that's exactly what he told, told Eve. The third part of his strategy is that he questioned God's character. He's really slick. Look at what he says. I mean, he's, he's, he's like full of himself. Verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, Satan cast doubt over God's character, suggesting that God was jealous. That's what's behind these words. 
Yeah, God's jealous of you, and, 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 and he's holding you back from your destiny. He just really doesn't want you to have this. And somehow or another, there's something sinful about God himself, something wrong. And if he really did care about you, he would let you do whatever you wanted to do. He would let you eat whatever you wanted to eat. He doesn't want you to be exactly like him. This was a blatant appeal to pride and competition. And by the way, this is the origin of all sin. All sin eventually has to do with pride. Every last bit of it. It has to do with acting independently of God, going out from underneath his canopy, saying, I can do whatever I want to do, and I'm not accountable for what I do. And that was the enemy's strategy. Well, let's summarize this a little bit here. First, Satan raised doubt concerning God's word. That's not really what he meant. Satan lied by saying they would not die. You're not going to die. And Satan told a partial truth, which is really a whole lie. They would know good and evil, and that they did. Now, verse 6 is one crisp verse in the Bible, but it is the most tragic verse in the entire Bible. It is the most tragic verse in the entire Bible. In one act, it threw the world into a mess. The response, twofold. One, there was defiant action. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. First, there's a response of the woman who takes the initiative. She is defiant in her action. The process goes something like this. Satan questioned God's intentions, Question what he meant, and then question his character, sort of loosen things up for her. She listened to that, and then she looked at the tree. She said, it's good food. Looks delicious. Hooked by the pride piece. I want wisdom. What's wrong with that? I'm married. We're having problems in our marriage. I made a bad decision. I meet someone else. They're everything that I need to be. Everything that I want. Maybe this is the one God intended for me. He wants me to be happy. What's wrong with that? And I could string that out. Good food. Looks delicious. And I deserve happiness. So she did it. And then also in the text, and I don't mean to bash men, but you need to see this. There is tragic passivity She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband 
who was with her, and he ate. Later on, you're going to see in a text why I believe Adam was with her even in the middle of the temptation based upon God's response. Adam was not out working, and then all of a sudden came up, and she ate some of it, and he gave it to her. He was with her the whole time. The question is, why didn't Adam say anything? Why didn't he correct his wife? More importantly, why didn't he protect his wife? Adam was created before Eve. He had intimate relationship with God. It's not like they didn't know. Why? And I, and I, I just have to be honest with you. There, and please, you know, don't write me about this. Look, there, 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 there is something, there, there is this confliction in men. On one hand, we're hunters and providers and that kind of thing. On the other hand, there is this natural passivity in all of us. And Adam was passive. There's another big thing that we need to grab a hold of before I make transition to the second major deal. And that is this, and and don't ever forget this, when accountability and punishment are removed from our actions, we will cross the line every time. We will cross that line every time. I don't care who you are. Uh, People sin because they can. We sin because we won't get caught, so we think. And what the enemy did was erase accountability, neuter accountability, not make it so bad, taking it away from you, that it's okay. And some of you that I'm talking to today, and please forgive me for my directness, but as a pastor, I need to tell you this. Some of you that I'm talking to today, you're living, you're living on thin ice. You've been doing this for a long time. Excusing your behavior. Nasty attitudes, fudging on the truth, gossiping about people, hidden lusts, in a way we justify that. So all kinds of, of emotional, mental gymnastics that make it acceptable. It is nothing new. I have that tendency, and so does everybody else who's ever been born. And when you eradicate accountability, you take away responsibility, everybody will sin because you can. The second major block here is the word discovered. Now, I have to say, you put quotes around discovered. It's not that God discovered it. Uh, He didn't discover it. He knew what was going to happen. I would say that this is self-discovery. And it wasn't what Adam and Eve wasn't what they were looking for. The results for Adam and Eve were not what they thought they would be. The promised divine enlightenment never showed up. Didn't show up. You see, sin always promises more than it can deliver. What's the old line? It promises more than it can deliver and takes you farther than you want to go. Sin always does that. Always promises great fulfillment. Always promises great happiness. Always promises that you're going to get what you really want. Well, you do, but you never don't. You know? And that's what happens here. 
there, 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 there are two big things that they discover. One, shame. And the other one is the ability to blame. First is shame. Look at verse uh, 7. Verses 7 through 11. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the, of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves. Lift those two words up. The, the shame, the shame, number one, was before each other. They knew that they were naked. If you go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, when God brings, Adam, uh, brings Eve to the man and the institution of marriage is established, you notice the text says, and the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Here we have the introduction of guilt in human history. This is the introduction of guilt in human history. We feel guilty because we've done something wrong, and this is the beginning of this guilt. And they felt this shame. Uh, uh, they were ill at ease with one another. That's the import of the old idea of, of seeing their nakedness. It's the introduction of mistrust and alienation. That's the bigger issue here. Mistrust had not been known. Uh, alienation had not been known. They were one with God, and they were one with each other. God would meet with them, and commune with them on a daily basis, and they had nothing to hide with one another. And all of a sudden, they, they were aware. Oh, my. Oh, my. We've done something wrong. So first you have shame before each other, and then shame before God. You know, notice how silly this is. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. <laughs> but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, God didn't raise these questions because he didn't know. God didn't raise these questions because he didn't know. When he says, Adam, where are you? It's like he said, look at where you are. Look at you. By the way, when I read this text, I think of my, my oldest daughter. This is hilarious. When she's like two or three years old, uh, she was going to get disciplined. And so she committed the cardinal sin she ran from me. She ran downstairs and said, there was, this, there was this toy box that you could see through. And so she got in the toy box. I'm saying, we got issues with this child. And uh, so I stood there. Actually, actually, she didn't get it so bad because I was laughing so hard. I was cracking. So what is she doing? And I don't think God was laughing. But can you imagine the idiocy of hiding in a garden from God? Adam, where are you? What, 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 what are you doing? Uh, did they actually think God wasn't going to find them? 
and I need to make an ancillary application here right now, do, do you actually think God doesn't know about the stuff in your life? You believe that? You actually believe that? You, you act, do you actually believe that you're going to get away with that? You think so? You, you actually think so. Do you, you actually believe that God's not going to find out and uncover the stuff in your life. God says, where, where, where are you? And this scares the heebie-jeebies out of me because I thought about this this week. I read the text and I said, you know, Adam and Eve had a relationship with a perfect God, lived in a perfect environment, and up until this time had a perfect nature. And yet they sinned. I sat back in my chair in my study and I said, homeboy, you ain't got a prayer. So let's not get too hard on them. If they could have daily communion with God in a perfect environment and be fooled, think about yourself. Don't ever say what you would not do. Don't ever go around talking about how good you are. Don't ever look down your self-righteous nose at somebody else that's caught in some debased, life-altering, ugly pattern of sin. We could all do that. They did, and so can we. There was shame, but also there was blame. There was blame. Verses 12 and 13. The man said, the woman you gave to me to be with me. She gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. (laughs) Oh my goodness. The Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me. Well, you know, it's interesting to me that God speaks to Adam first. He goes to him first. He goes to him first. Adam should have taken the initiative to protect Eve, but he didn't. He was passive. And Adam blamed Eve, and Eve blames the serpent, but no one wants to take responsibility. And the question is, who are we blaming? Who are we blaming? And please forgive me here, but I got to tell you that uh, one of the most important things you can do in raising your kids is not to cover for their weaknesses and mistakes that they make, but early on in their lives... Help them to take personal responsibility for the choices and decisions that they make. Don't bail them out. Don't don't lighten the consequences. Help them to take that personal responsibility. Blaming is inside of all of us. And we have been playing the blame game for thousands of years. As I was doing some background reading on this text, I came across this article on the effects of sin. And I just want to quote the first paragraph Because this woman that wrote this article says it so clearly. She says, in our postmodern society, more often than not, people account their misfortunes or their hurt-felt lives to their environmental surroundings, sickness, and anything else that will remove the blame from their own sinful nature. The husband who is dissatisfied blames a critical wife. The student with bad, bad grades blames their terrible teachers. The depressed woman blames her childhood and people continue to blame everyone except the sin that entangles our thoughts and ways when we walk away from obedience to God. 
The fact is, sin gives birth to enslavement, self-centeredness, and leaves people with an inability to love among many other things. We're in a mess today because we've sinned. Now, I, I, I'm here to say, uh, do people mess over us? Absolutely. Is there abuse? Absolutely. Are there contributing factors to how we think about ourselves? Absolutely. But I have to tell you, we, we never get free until we own the responsibility for our own mess. We don't. We don't get free until I look in the mirror and say, yeah, yeah, I, I wish my dad would have done this. I wish they hadn't messed over me. I wish they had got this opportunity. But you know what? I own what I've done. And blaming is as old as human history. Well, they were deceived, discovered, and now they're disciplined. First, God speaks to Satan. Verses 14 and 15. I I wish I had a whole message just on these two verses here, but I, I don't. So let me just summarize this. Basically, God says two things to Satan. One, that you're going to be despised. And number two, you're ultimately going to be defeated. The Lord God said to the serpent in verse 14, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field and on your belly you shall go and thus you shall eat all the days of your life. I don't want to get too heavy. I think it is obvious the snake would be a perpetual reminder to mankind of temptation and sin. They're going to be a perpetual reminder. Reminder, and I'm going to use you as a word picture throughout all of history of sin. And you're going to be slimy. You're going to be despicable. And I want to make you that way. But also defeated. This is an incredible verse. Here's the first most scholars believe, and I agree with this, the first messianic prophecy, prophecy concerning Christ in the entire Bible is found in verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. The first part of that verse means simply this. There will be a perpetual struggle between satanic forces and mankind until Christ returns. That's what that verse, the first part of that verse means. That there are from now on the arena for my activity in the world will be this great struggle between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And I don't mean to scare you. But ladies and gentlemen, the devil has a target on you and he's out to destroy your life. He's out to destroy your marriage. He's out to destroy anything good about you. It is part of his strategy. And so we're involved in this this warfare, this, this struggle. But the second part of the verse is, is that Satan would be defeated at the cross. <laughs> he says, he shall bruise her head But you shall bruise his heel, meaning that our Savior on the cross will step on the head of the devil. That there would be a provision in human history where the God of the ages, through his blessed Son, would ultimately defeat the power of the enemy over our lives. And now to the woman, he says, verse 16, 
to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. Self-explanatory, you're going to have, from now on, you're going to have pain in bearing children. And I don't want to comment too much about this because I'll get in trouble. I'm not a woman, but I've seen my wife in labor. It's not a joyful thing. Uh, There will be pain in childbearing. But I want you to start this next one. Hmm. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. There's going to be competition with your husband. I've got to tell you that there are three views about this whole passage here. This has is, this is caused a quite, quite, a, quite a bit of conversation. View number one means that there's, you're going to have sexual desire towards your husband. I discount that view because it doesn't fit the context. View number two is that this desire for your husband means that you're going to desire security and protection from your husband. You could sort of do that, but that also does not fit the context here. The third view is that you will compete with your husband. In the Hebrew, there's an alternative rendering for the preposition. It says, your desire shall be for your husband. It could have been translated, your desire will be against your husband. In other words... Because you took the lead and you listened to the enemy from now on in marriage, there is going to be this competition about who takes the leadership. You're going to compete with your husband. This is all a part of the fall. You're going to second guess him. You're going to question his decisions. You're going to think you can do things better. Maybe you can. But there's going to be this competition in marriage. And now to the man. God, uh, God, God comes very hard at Adam. The man is disciplined and for, in, in three areas. Number one, God rebukes him for failure to lead. He says in verse 17... And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. It's an indication that Adam was there all the way along and he listened to his wife and he did what he knew that he should not have done. He was created before Eve. He had relationship with God. Adam knew this and he was passive. So God himself rebukes him for his failure to lead. And guys, I'm not trying to beat us up here. I'm just saying what the text says. Adam simply did not show up. How in the world are you going to let some snake talk your wife into doing stuff that you know good and well God said not to do? Number two, the ground would be cursed. Verses 17 and 18, the second part of verse 17 You shall not eat of it, meaning the ground. Cursed is the ground uh, because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. What he's saying here is simply this. Adam and Eve sinned by eating. Now they would suffer in order to eat. 
You're going to suffer in order to eat. It's not going to be as easy as you thought. The third piece of discipline that God uh, issued to Adam is that he would have weariness in work. Verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. But then this next little section here, God, even in the fall, even in light of the fact that these people that he had created sinned against him, we see even as God rebukes them, the mercy and provision of God. Look at these words in verse 20. The man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. But look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. <laughs> oh my. You might miss this if you just read it casually. But God institutes the sacrificial system as a sign to be merciful to Adam. Here we have God slaying animals and using the skin to cover Adam and Eve. It was a tender thing. It's as if he says, I want to cover your sins. I want to be merciful to you. And ultimately, our sins would be covered and taken away through the bloody sacrifice of God's Son on the cross, the Lord Jesus. And you know, throughout history, thousands of years after this, blood sacrifice, blood sacrifice, blood sacrifice, blood sacrifice. And we get into the law, and, and, and each year, the Day of Atonement, our sins would be covered. This all goes back to what God did in the garden. But in the fullness of time, the Lord Jesus would come and die on the cross in our place and for our sin. And the writer of Hebrews would say, once and for all, our sins would be covered. They would be taken, taken care of. Adam and Eve had life, they now had death. They had pleasure, they now have pain. They had abundance, they, and now they hold meager subsistence or had meager subsistence and toil. They had perfect fellowship and now alienation and conflict. In the final straw, they were deceived, they were discovered, they were disciplined, but finally, they are dispersed. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the gate of, garden of, of, of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. And here's our legacy. Here's our legacy. In the dispersion of mankind, God summarizes our legacy. Our legacy has to do with loss of intimacy with God and distance and separation from God. We experience death, physical death, 
But more tragically, we experience spiritual death because of sin. I'm going to have the worship team come back up at this point. And we're getting ready to celebrate communion. But I want to read a passage of Scripture in the New Testament that finishes the story. I am so glad that God made provision through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ for our sin. Jesus is called the last Adam. The first Adam screwed up. But the gospel and our restoration comes through the last Adam, the Lord Jesus. Verse 12 of Romans chapter 5. Just listen to these words. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But here you have it. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Christ Jesus, abounded for many. What he's saying is simply this, that there's not a person here that has to be guilty of sin. That through Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, he erased the penalty of sin. And that we can stand forgiven in him. We, we can have our sins washed away. We don't have to have fig leaves tied around our guilty consciences in our hearts. We can be loose and free. And when we celebrate communion, we celebrate the fact that, no, not physically, the Garden of Eden has not been restored, but spiritually, we have been restored to the Garden of Eden. That God tells us, come on back in the garden. And don't you want that? Don't you desire that? I'd like for you to bow your heads with me right now. If you're here today and you know that you, 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 you need forgiveness and you've been bit, beaten up because of your sin and your shame and the guilt has gotten to you, there's nothing you can do to make God love you. He already does. And the great news is, he's turned things around through Jesus Christ. And all you have to do is say, Lord Jesus, please forgive me of my sin. I turn from it. I trust you. And I receive you. We're going to celebrate communion. And I'm going to have the men come forward even now as I pray. And we're going to pass out the elements. As we celebrate communion, this celebration is for those of us who've invited Jesus Christ to come into our hearts and lives, for we're celebrating what he in fact has done for us in forgiving our sins on a personal basis. But if you have just invited Christ in your life, I invite you to celebrate that with us. Lord Jesus, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your provision. We love you. We bless your name for all that you are. In Jesus' name, amen.